Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Right. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So, Ethan, there's so many different things that we're going to be talking about with Ethan today, uh, and I'm going to kind of like break it down. But the first and foremost thing, I have to give Ethan his nickname. So, his nickname is going to be the Pro Assisting Boss. We're going to break down what that is, what he does. But first and foremost, he's a fellow Sagittarius, and he's from New York. And I just met him, and I love him already. So, just start with that. Let's get that out the way. Love it. So now the floor is yours. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about you and what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, sure. Um, well, oh, uh, I grew up in upstate New York, uh, six hours north of the city in a really small town and kind of um, drove me crazy with being in a small town. Had to break out. Went to college in Boston uh, at a specialty business school, Bentley University. And then um, immediately in 1996, right after school, moved to New York City. And uh, the first job I got was as a, as a production assistant on um, the movie Addicted Love. And uh, then uh, from there, uh, I worked on a number of Hollywood um, pictures, um, both in television and in film. Uh, on the studio side of things, I worked as a production coordinator and production secretary. On the independent side of things, I worked as a uh, dolly grip and best boy grip. And, and then I did a stint at William Morris in the mailroom agency, that the oldest talent agency in the world. It's now owned by Endeavor. And from there, went into, say, films, assisted the chairman there, and then moved into advertising and, um, you know, created this career as an executive assistant. Um, and really, um, really wanted to be able to chase dreams outside of the office, you know, uh, music and writing scripts. And I want to be a director and being an assistant really allowed me to do that outside of the office. And I had a, a very encouraging boss in that respect. Um, but then you roll over and you're a career executive assistant after 25 years. And, um, you know, so that, uh, that kind of drove the ship. And then, and then, you know, my wife and I had a second son move out of New York city and, and now we're back home to the, the small hometown that I, I really like growing up, but now I, I really love living here. So, I mean, you brought up like, you know, I guess you're, you're Southeast of Rochester and I was looking up like the general population of the city that you live in. So back in 2010, there were only 10,000 people in that population. So, I mean, growing up, you were really, even though people think New York is always big city. I mean, New York, Northern New York is definitely a small town kind of feel to it. So I want to talk about like, how did you go from that small town feel to where you are right now? And I mean, obviously your journey going into big lights and cameras, going into an, an executive assistant, like how did that transition? Well, well, the interesting thing about Canandaigua is one of the Finger Lakes, um, and it sits at the north end of Canandaigua Lake. And um, given the proximity to Rochester, 
the population uh, goes from about 15,000 people in the, in the off season to about 30, 35,000 people on season. And so, um, and, and you, you feel that in town and there's a, a much different type of personality that comes into town in, in the summer. Um, but in terms of, it's still a small town. I mean, uh, you know, I still a graduating class of 250 people. Um, you know, my dad owned a restaurant. My stepfather was an attorney. My mother was a teacher. You know, I got caught for every bad thing I did because there's eyes everywhere, even when there weren't cameras. And so that's that that loss of there was zero anonymity. And I guess that's what drew me to big cities was I really like the idea of having anonymity um, and, you know, found that in Boston, outside of Boston, meeting a completely new group of people. And then, you know, you really find that when you move to a city like New York. So, I mean, how did you get into marketing? Because, I mean, obviously you went to school for marketing, you're, you got a degree in marketing, you worked in marketing, but now you're doing more like, you know, you're helping build startups. So I want to talk about like, how, how did that come in from a small town? Like, what was the attraction to marketing? Well, I just like to say we're, we're building our business um, and we're in our, we're, we're, we're closing out our fifth year right now. So I don't, I don't know if I can use the term startup, even though I still want to. Um, but the interesting thing is, is the entertainment industry really leverages the assistant position mm. as something that is where everybody earns their stripes. You know, pushing a mail cart, I was next to graduates of Yale Law School, Harvard Law School, um, you know, Stanford MBAs who even used connections to get job in the mailroom as an agent trainee. That's how like 60 to 70% of people get started in Hollywood. Mm. And the thing was my transition to advertising happened because the boss that I ended up working for in advertising went through 13 assistants in one year. Mm. And they were looking for someone who had a thick skin, who moved fast and could win him over and um he enjoyed movies immensely and so our first interview we really hit it off there and that that was my transition into into advertising but i think the bigger thing is is that as an assistant whether you're an administrative assistant an office assistant or an executive assistant a senior executive assistant it's really a position that's industry agnostic mm -hmm. and you know it's all about creating that relationship with your principal um, or your boss, your client, and meeting their needs, being a chameleon to fit to their needs. So that's a really interesting thing is that I was, it's a, it was a very easy shift moving from entertainment to advertising. And then I eventually went from advertising to healthcare. And um, I'm, I'm just a firm believer that, that being a top level executive assistant or an administrative assistant, it's a trade and it, it can transcend industry. Hmm. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And I think that that's a hell of a segue to, to like my next question. So for, for the listener, we, let's define the, like these abbreviations, right? So there's EA, there's PA, and there's VA. Now I want you to kind of establish the differences between the, through, the three of them and, and what are you and what do you do exactly? Sure. So we'll start with um, EA, which stands for Executive Assistant. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
um, I, the way I look at it is the difference between an executive assistant and a senior executive assistant is more along the lines of time. How long have you been doing it? it, it it's an it's a way for a company, a client, or a company or a principal to give you a title bump after you've been with them for so long. Uh, and when you're doing that at the highest level, and I'm talking about CEOs of companies that are doing a billion in revenue or a hedge fund CEO or the CEO of fashion house or the COO of an ad agency um, really composes being that business partner, chief of staff, project manager, assistant scheduler and personal assistant. Uh, we can go into that, but I'll shift to PA now and in entertainment, PA means production assistant. And that's someone who is um, a jack of all trades there as someone who can run off and grab something quick, can be stationed somewhere and their job is ever changing. In the a business world and in the, in a, in a, uh, where people can afford it, a personal assistant is someone who handles everything personal. Um, and that is something that falls under the, we feel under the title of executive assistant. Um, but you know, a personal assistant could be a body man or a body woman who is traveling with you and interacting with everybody on your behalf. And again, creating that buffer, being that person that sits in between you and everyone else. Um, but that's personal assistant. And then virtual assistant, you know, when we moved to upstate New York from New York City, um, my wife got approached uh, by a friend of ours. And she said, I know this consultant who works for Fortune 100 companies, travels the world, needs support, doesn't care where the support is and doesn't need full time. Would you be interested? And she said, sure. And we started doing a deep dive. Um, this was in 2017 on virtual assistants. And the term virtual assistant was really made famous by Tim Ferriss in the four hour work week back in 2007. Okay. And the, his thesis was I can hire a, a virtual assistant from the Philippines for $5 an hour to run my, you know, my, my online business, my uh, book marketing and podcasts and, you know, blogs and all of that. Um, and so that's kind of, that kind of stuck. And so then companies in the United States sprung up where, you know, they're charging $45 an hour for a virtual executive assistant. And I applied to one of those companies and uh, the largest one in the States. And they were like, Ethan, great. We want you to be one of our partners. Um, we'll partner you with eight, 10, 12, 15 clients. Um, and we'll pay you $18 an hour. And when can you start? Um, and for both myself and Stephanie, career executive assistants making well in six figures, um, that just didn't align with either the compensation or the, the idea that someone could handle 8, 10, 12 clients month in and month out successfully in terms of the service that we provide. So we, that's where we created pro assisting and we consider ourselves remote executive assistants. 
Um, and, and in that regard, we limit the number of assistants or number of clients that our assistants support to three mm. and we compensate them appropriately um, based on their experience and, um, and a lot of it based on their emotional intelligence, interpersonal skills, work ethic, the soft skills that really elevate the role. I, does that cover kind of give you the overview? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think, I mean, for the, for the listener, I think you definitely def- defined it really, really, really well. And I think you also gave us like another opportunity to talk about something in your personal life, right? It's not every day that you have a business that's successful up and running, but you have a co-founder that's your wife, Stephanie. So I want you to kind of talk about like, not only are you guys co-founders in this business, but you guys are also co-authors in a book as well. So like, and you guys probably have different personalities and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys can be very similar as far as your business, but as far as like personalities, I would think you probably would be polar opposites then correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to hear some more about that. Oh yeah. Um, um, Stephanie definitely uh, rounds out my harsh, harder edges um, and is uh, the guardrails on me because I'm the entrepreneur. I'm the idea guy. I'm coming up with all these ideas and that what we want to do and what we can do. And and she's very, very good at um, listening, listening to those ideas, acknowledging and, and, and yet getting me to take a step back and take a beat. That also happens with um, uh, when, when we're dealing with an issue with a client or, um, you know, or an assistant or, uh, a prospect, you know, she's really, really good at that. And, and we balance each other out there, um, immensely. Uh, so, ah, and, the, and the beautiful thing about our business is that we've been able to kind of really silo and, and we have our own, uh, talents if you will. So um, that really, you know, it really uh, makes it easier. It's not like we're sitting in the same room all day. And we do have things to talk about um, after hours and, and things that she's done that day or I did. And, and so it's, um, it's actually working together like this has made our, our marriage so much stronger and, and better. Our communication is just through the roof. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's really great. I think it's definitely interesting. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of structure in what you guys do. So it kind of leads me to like my next question is about your your processes, right? I mean, you have like an onboarding process, you have introductions, you have status calls, continuing integrations, and, and you also define that it's white labeling. So I want to talk about like, how do those pieces come together? And are you guys like sitting around like a round table throwing ideas and then making, you know, like a, a scenario that what you both think would work best for the client? You know, we have processes, but um, I'm, oh, we're always trying to say, what's the easiest, what's the simplest? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times we see uh, both in our work previously and with clients, um, sometimes they make processes just for processes' sake, as opposed to really talking about what's the end goal and working backwards from there. Um, in terms of this on onboarding or uh, starting clients, um, you know, we have a very simple process. It's, it's uh, one email with one client questionnaire with best, best practices 
some questions to answer. And then we are very particular about who we partner with as our executive assistants in that they've done this a lot. They've onboarded clients or bosses a lot throughout their career. So this is nothing new to them. Um, and we just try and make it as simple and frictionless as possible on, on the business side. And it's all about really getting them rolling and going with their assistant. And then um, I'm always there and Stephanie's always there to provide coaching and, and talk things through if there's any questions or whatnot. But again, it's a really simple process. And, and I tell my clients, they said, you know, it starts the onboarding, that first onboarding call, you're just going to go through a ton of questions and they're going to gather a ton of information. But then really after that call, the work starts and, and the amount of onboarding goes down and the amount of, amount of work that's actually being done goes up. And, and I say, I say, in a, in a, when it's working good, two weeks in, you're going to be like, wow, this has felt like two months yeah. and I can't believe we're going this far, this fast. And, and part of that is that we create that one-on-one relationship and we don't insert ourselves in between our clients and our assistants. It's, we, if, I guess going back to my entertainment days, what we do is we are providing, we are an agent for our executive assistants. And, um, you know, we're taking a 20% um, cut of the retainer, but 80% of that goes to our assistants and which is unheard of. It's frankly unheard of in the remote space. And, and that's how we partner with exceptional assistants. And, um, we can get into that if you like, but I, I went off on a little tangent there, you know, I mean, no, I think I think it's information is genuine good information because I mean that's why I wanted to start off with like the definition because you know people they hear about VAs, but they don't really know what an EA is and you're really breaking it down to to a level to where it's it, first of all it's layman but they can comprehend the value proposition differently right so I mean obviously an EA is a higher value added than a standard VA and, that, and that's that's what that, that's what you're building up to right. Yeah, I mean, I can give you that quick little thumbnail of of what it looks like. And and really it's it's since our assistants are limited to three clients, mm-hmm. the nature of executive assistant work is like this. They, you know, there's there's busy times and then there's quiet times. Busy times, quiet times, busy days, quiet days, busy weeks, quiet weeks, et cetera, et cetera. And so it leaves space for our assistants to feather in the work between each client every day. They are available to their clients Monday through Friday, nine to five. That's within an hour turnaround time on communication and usually within 15 minutes. Um, That allows for off the cuff phone calls for the client to just pick up the phone and call the assistant and say, hey, um, this changed for tomorrow. Can you update it or or what have you? Um, And then we also provide support after hours on weekends in very atypical situations or should the principal be traveling and what that does is it really provides full service support mm-hmm. and that feeling of full service support without being full-time or a full-time assistant now we start at three thousand dollars a month so for thirty six thousand dollars a year we're allowing our clients to have access to an assistant who could command a hundred and twenty thousand dollar salary in New York City, um, but we're doing it fractionally. So 
you know, that's kind of what it looks like. It, it you know, um, I think virtual assistants are great for a lot of things, you know, and, and there are instances in your business where you should leverage that support. And I'm happy to talk to prospects and turn them in that direction. I just know that we're, we're not the right fit. Um, but if you want that feeling of a true executive assistant remotely, kind of in the sky, if you will, um, that's, that's our goal. That's what we provide. I think it's definitely, it's a hell of a business model. And I, and I think it's, you're leveraging like assets to your point, you're like, you're fractionalizing them, right? So you may have one EA that's doing only three clients, but then you'll have maybe just say 10, 20, 30, 40 EAs at scale. And you're talking about you're only eating 20% off top. I mean, you're doing a multiplication play, right? More EAs that you have that are doing great work over a period of time, you can scale that and it's infinitely you can scale it. There's no real limitations or cap. So let's 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 talk about like the structuring like of your business. Are you more so kind of like an LLC, an S Corp, a C Corp? Like what flavor are you? Actually, that's a pretty interesting question. Last year, um, we transitioned from an S, uh, from an LLC to an S Corp. Okay. And the reason we did that was because we got to a size where um, basically, if you're an LLC, then this is not legal advice, so don't take it as legal advice. But in, from our perspective, we looked at our business. We said, look, we're an LLC. We're paying FICA on all of um, our money coming through. And so, um, a, you know, Mark Kohler is this accountant on the internet, um, who I watched a ton of his stuff. And then I started talking to attorney friends of mine and accountant friends of mine. And they're like, yeah, you transition to an S corp, you pay you and your wife a W2. And then after that is taken out, you are, you're, you're only paying your income tax on the pass-through money as opposed to FICA on all of it. Um, it also gave us an opportunity to start a solo 401k, even though, well, you can start a solo 401k on an LLC as well and, and grow your retirement mm -hmm. in a significant way. Um, so we made that transition um, last year. And, and so now we're pro-assisting Inc. as opposed to an LLC. And... Um, little bit more hoops to jump through mm -hmm. something I think you want to do when you start getting to a revenue level and an EBITDA level where it makes sense. And in, you have some money to actually do the process, you know, it's not hugely expensive, but, um, you know, just some things to think about when I think about our remote executive assistants who are independent contractors and we work them through that process, mm -hmm. the LLC is the best way to go. Um, initially. And, you know, it's, it's very easy. It's very inexpensive to, you know, even if you're living in a state like New York, you're still probably only paying $300 to get an LLC up and running. Um, and so that's, that's another part of our business where um, I do a lot of coaching with our assistants on how to work through that, how to account for taxes, how, what are business expenses, Again, not as accounting advice, but just things that they need to keep track of and ask their accountant so they're staying on top of their business. Um, I think for me being an entrepreneur, it was very exciting, but yeah. 
for, for a normal person who's a W-2 employee, considering making the transition to their own business, it can be very intimidating. And it's not hard. It's just you have to learn and understand the process. Um, what's interesting is that we are starting to seriously think this year about starting a side of our business that focuses on our assistance and training assistants how that would look in terms of taking their trade of being an assistant and starting a business. And the best thing, you know, we didn't throw a dart into the dartboard and say, which is the best business to start? We started with a business that both Stephanie and I were experts in and lived for 20 plus years, 25 plus years. And, and so many people, I think, don't recognize how valuable their W-2 job is from the perspective of someone outside looking in and how to either productize that or make it a service that can be almost profitable from day one. I think I think it's, it's a hell of a philosophy, right? So, I mean, you're talking about potentially starting up like some variation of education for your current executive assistants. So uh, like this next question is kind of like I'm playing devil's advocate here, right? So are you going to be training them ideally to become more of like your partners? Because again, you're going to be giving them insight, entrepreneurial information, which can easily convert an employee to competition or are you trying to convert that employee into partnerships? They're not employees. They are independent contractors for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we do not have employees. Uh, and, and, the, and the reason we have them create an LLC is because they are starting their own business. And we have a number of assistants who have one client of ours, or maybe two, and they're not full. And they're full with work outside of us. Mm-hmm. I've I've coached some of our assistants on how to close clients on their on their own, how to think about pricing, how to. It, there's so much workout business out there um, that it. I. I also have to be very upfront with our assistants when we bring them on, and say I can't guarantee you that we're going to get you one client in one month one, a second client in month two, and a third client in month three. I don't know. We have to have the clients coming in, the prospects coming in. There is a little bit of seasonality to our business that we're learning now after five years. Um, And so there is risk on their side and and I'm all for them um, hanging their own shingle. I want them to have their own shingle. I, I, you know, and use us as a foundation to launch that business of theirs. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate the question, though. Um, it just is in our business model, they understand that they're taking that risk when they partner with us. Um, and, you know, in terms of how our model works, the goal is to create a nice lifestyle where, you know, they can do what they do and they can move away from the major metropolitan areas, totally change their socioeconomic setting. And yet, still be paid commensurate with that experience. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's flawless. It's definitely very interesting. And and I, I can tell that you've been doing it long enough that you thought through the variables, right? Because sometimes people just jump in and just saying that, you know, Mike told me to do this because he's done it. But like, no, you've lived through it. 
you've lived through it. So like you're, you're setting the example and then you're, you're guiding them in the right direction. So for anyone that's a 1099 employee that's making that connection with their actual employer per se, I think that's a great, great partnership to have. Yeah. Um, and, and I, 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 sometimes I, I advise against an assistant partnering with us, even though I want them to, mm-hmm. um, just because whether they're, you know, I talk to assistants who are making $150,000 a year. And, um, if they're, if, if that, if their lifestyle has, has crept up to fill that kind of salary, um, we're, we're not there, you know, we're, we're, we're not able to provide them with three clients to get them there. Now I can provide them with one for them to start, and then they can go out and leverage their network and find people that they've worked with and, and, and get back up to that level. But, um, you know, so sometimes I advise against it. Mm-hmm. So well, let's, let's, let's flip this up a little bit, right? So let's say, if, if Stephanie was sitting down next to you right now and I would ask her, what are three to five words to define Ethan? What do you think she would say to define you? Creative. Passionate. She would say that my first reaction is always no. Mm. Um, meaning like, (laughs) I think we should get a dog. No. (laughs) And then two months later, it's like, yeah, we should get a dog. (laughs) Um, I would say communicative. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would also think she may say that I am able to have difficult conversations in an empathetic way. Um, That's definitely hopefully cute (laughs) or hot. (laughs) Well, well, the empathy is definitely interesting. I mean, because both of us are both Sagittarius and, and it's just kind of like every Sagittarius that I've met, including myself, like empathy is something that that we have, but but when we're head fast and focus on whatever the end result is, it's kind of like you know certain things kind of go out the window. So I want you to kind of talk about like, have you always been that empathetic, or is that something that you've grown into as you got older? Well, um, there was a career, uh, there was a pivotal moment in my career, and it was when I started working for the ad agency. And for that very difficult boss, and after a year, uh, I won him over. Mm. I stuck it out. I won him over. He was so intelligent, so fast, wasn't afraid to yell, wasn't afraid to swear. Um, Everybody was afraid of him. And for some reason, we got through that first year, and and I won him over. Um, But that combined with my entertainment experience as an executive assistant and as a production assistant in that pretty heady space and world, a lot of sharp elbows are thrown. Mm-hmm. And um, my uh, that, that uh, very difficult boss at the ad agency turned out to be my favorite boss I've ever had. Wow. And, and after four years, he moved on. And uh, he wasn't allowed to take me with him. 
uh, for a non-compete reason. And the uh, chief operating officer of the agency, she took me under her wing. And she is an also amazing boss. Um, the two of them are my two most, well, there's one other, but um, just really, 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 really great bosses. And um, after working for her for a year, the agency had gone from being led by these brash, outspoken men to being led by these brash, considerate, open, extremely intelligent women. And during my review that year, my boss said to me, she's like, you know, you suffer fools lightly. And what she meant by that was, you know, when we have a new business pitch or a client work is, has to go out or, and someone isn't moving at the speed that I wanted them to, I was not afraid to tell them, get your butt in gear. Let's go. I need this. This is not, I'm not, this is our, this is work. We got to get this done. Um, and you know, we, we had a lot of younger folks coming up into the agency and they just, she said, she said the younger generation just is, doesn't react to that. Well, um, isn't, isn't programmed, um, to handle that well. And people are scared of you. Hmm. And so I went home <clears throat> talk to Stephanie and, and being Sagittarius, I think we're, we're very sensitive. Uh, and we are, at least I am. And I th think of things and things weigh on me. Um, and I really took that conversation to heart and I started to think about the role of being an assistant and it's really to serve. And I really changed my mental position and over the next couple of months, I had some conversations with some people I had a run-in with. And I said, hey, I, I still feel bad about saying X, Y, and Z back when. And I smoothed a lot of relationships over. I changed how I dealt with new employees coming in and really softened my elbows and trying to get to that place of being a modern assistant. Mm -hmm. Someone who is, you know, um, you know, really looked to has a sense of high touch hospitality thinking back to working in my father's restaurant and the hospitality that we talked about way back then when i was 10 11 12 years old um i think part of that too was i'm a straight male executive assistant mm. there's like 16 of us across the country and and i think part was was ashamed of of doing that role and being in that place and so that review from her started the process of me looking at myself, looking at what my role was within the company and how I could do it better. And that was becoming more empathetic. And, and in a lot of instances beyond then, it was hiding or covering for my boss's um, sharp elbows. And being the person of, of, of reason and whatnot, because she, when she told me that, she says, I'm the same way. She's like, I suffer fools lightly too. And she's like, you remember Fred, Fred, 
the boss that I had, who was the hard, hard, hard boss, he yeah. was her mentor. And she said, Fred's told me the same thing. Um, you know, it's, it's just that we just got to be conscientious of it. And uh, that really set me on a path to review or rethink what the assistant role was. And what was interesting is Stephanie was doing the same thing that I was doing, but doing it for hedge fund CEOs and the CEO of J. Crew and whatnot. And that just came naturally to her. You know, that that's her MO is not to throw elbows. Her MO is to, you know, come on, we can get this done and this is this is a good thing. And and so um I guess I guess that's that's where I pinpoint it back to, and that's become a cornerstone of pro assisting and how we view and what I look for in a great executive assistant who we want to partner with. Hmm. So I mean, obviously, the, the definition of what, what you're stating is that you're you're a seasoned vet in what you do, right? Uh, and I want you to kind of talk about like how long did it take you to become this seasoned individual? Did you, I mean, you have to be conscious of it at some period of time. So was it like a 10 year of on that treadmill or was it 15, 20 years? How long did it take you to, to get to where you are right now? You know, the hard skills, the technical skills of, you know, really managing uh, lines of communication, email, contacts, calendar, um, you know, pro computer program systems and um, all of, uh, you know, making sure things aren't falling through the cracks and um, agendas and travel arrangements, all that stuff is, you know, the mother of a, you know, of a five kid household does that stuff all the time. Um, so I think in terms of the hard skills, not that, not that long. You know, if, if you're conscientious and you have a work ethic and you believe or you care about your work product, you keep score, um, it, those hard things aren't that hard. It's the soft skills and the trust that you build up with your principal. And in that regard, it's a two-way street. You can have a principal that doesn't share information with you, that doesn't want you to do things or um, keeps him, you know, keeps you in the dark, doesn't include you where it would be nice if they did. And that can really hinder your growth. Or you can have um, a principal who gives you everything. And a unique story about that is Stephanie was working for the CEO of a hedge fund um, for seven years, eight years. And in year two, he held a meeting and it was with uh, an architect, it was with a general contractor, and it was with a project manager about building out a $20 million estate on the coast of Connecticut. Oh. And he called Stephanie into the room and said to each person sitting there, the architect, general contractor, project manager, this is Stephanie. She's my executive assistant. You're going to be dealing with her. She is going to filter the information to me at the best time for me to make decisions. If she says something or asks you a question, consider it coming from me. Now, she built that rapport up with him in a year for him to be able to trust her with that um, because he saw how great she was, but that's just the kind of guy he was, you know? He didn't want to micromanage. He was time arbitraging. And that is um, 
especially um, as we've during COVID and beyond. And uh, I have seen from our clients time and time again, is that it shifted from having the most absolute highest successful business possible to time arbitraging. And um, we are part of that puzzle in what we do. Um, so in terms of timeline, how long does it take you? What does it, it the hard skills happen, it can happen really quickly. Or you're, if you're just very organized, if you have inbox zero on your personal inbox, and your calendar is up to date with your eye appointment that's happening three months from now and your, you know, your trip to Aruba that's happening next week, you can use those skills and be an assistant. It's more about the mental place of where you want to be and how to think about the difference between service and hospitality, how to create rapport with both a principal, but also everybody who you interact with on behalf of that principal. Um, and that takes time, but with someone like Stephanie, it happened naturally and quickly with me, um, coming from the hard knocks of, of working in entertainment and then a really hard advertising environment. It happened more slowly because of the environment. Hmm. Hmm. I think that that's a phenomenal answer. Right. And it kind of leads me into like being that you're saying in the beginning it, things were a little bit rockier per se than what they are right now you have to kind of iron things out if time travel was a real thing and you had an opportunity to go back anywhere on your your journey when would you want to go back to and what would you like to change if you could well this this um both stephanie and we talk about it a lot. We practice gratitude. We are so thrilled with where we are right now. Um, we're, we just feel blessed um, that we got to be where we are. But and 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 I say that just because my answer totally blows that to smithereens. In that, I still I still have a story in me and a script, and I still want to direct, and I still I still want to chase that dream. Um, I still think at one point I'll be able to get there. Um, and I'm turning 50 this year. So, um, just interesting stuff. And so if I could go back to when I was assisting the chairman of USA films, um, he was working under Barry Diller and Barry Diller owned USA films under the USA network center. And we had made traffic the movie that won the Academy Award that year from Steven Soderbergh. And um, I was his second assistant. And uh, after six months, uh, eight, no, actually after nine months, um, he had to let me go because Barry Diller said, we're tightening the belt and, and you know, you got to cut 60% of your overhead. And I was in New York and, and he was just like, I, I, we just got to let you go. Um, if, if I had to do it over again, I would, I always wonder what it would have been like if I actually at that moment moved to Los Angeles mm. and um, leveraged that experience uh, from William Morris and USA Films into um, an assisting role or writer's room role um, to continue down that path. Um, so, mm. yeah. 
Well, I mean, I think that kind of goes back to like the root, right? I mean, we're, we're kind of documenting your, your story. And in the beginning, you're talking about your, your keywords were being creative. A word that you use over and over again was entertainment, which kind of leads me into like the music space. Now, those that have followed you on the internet or, or after this call, they should definitely go and, and what I'm about to, to bring to fruition, go and check out some of these video clips. But there was a video clip with you. And I think this one was on Facebook and it was a Miller Life can. And it was you on a guitar and you were playing the hell out the guitar. And at the end, you kind of, you were singing and then you close it out with whistling. So I think the showman in you, you've done multiple different videos like that. Is that something that you do to kind of leverage to keep you in tune with the entertainment and the creativity? I, I mean, just music is an amazing outlet. Um, I've been singing since I was in seventh grade. Uh, and when I I hadn't picked up an instrument um, and I went off to college and a couple of my friends were musicians or my new friends and they were jamming and I get home from college again moving from Boston back to this upstate town where I didn't want to be I didn't want to come back mm-hmm. you know between my freshman and sophomore year I was miserable and um my mother said, what if we got you a keyboard and some piano lessons? And, you know, with my ear and, you know, uh, those lessons and just practicing like six hours a day, every day, all through the summer, um, learning my triads, my chords, learning the progressions, learning some songs, starting to get my voice back into it and being able to sing and, and, and play that way and, and getting a microphone. Uh, and then I went back after two months, three months, and I sat down with those guys. I'm like, all right, let's jam. And they're like, what, how did you, you learned how to play? I'm like, yeah, what are you playing? Like, and I'm like, what, what are the chords? And they threw out the chords and I, I kept up and they, and that really started the journey. And then um, the following year, uh, or that year, a friend of mine moved back after studying abroad in Australia into our room, our apartment, and he had a guitar. And then I started transitioning what I learned on the piano to the guitar, and um, and then as well as percussion. And um, uh, I'm naturally rhythmic. Um, I have an ear, and so I I picked that up, and and it just went from there, and. Um, while I was working in, in New York City, um, I ran an open mic for a few years on Thursday nights. And it uh, actually it was Wednesday nights. And it, it was, um, you know, I mean, working a nine to five gig and then running, a, a, running an open mic is and you're out until two in the morning and then it, it wore on you. But um, again, another great experience. Um, I've recently gotten back into piano And, uh, but, uh, honestly, music a little bit over the last couple, a year and a half has, has fallen more towards the side, um, as the business has been taking a lot of my mental space and creativity. Um, you can be creative in business. Um, it is, uh, again, something I draw on. Um, but I always look at uh, music as something I'll always have and I'll always turn to. Um, at different seasons in my life. Um, 
But uh, yeah, that song you're mentioning, covering Dave Matthews playing 41, um, you know, that's a hard song to play, but uh, love Dave Matthews, um, you know, and uh, and then, you know, playing piano and whatnot. It, it's a great creative, having a creative outlet like, like that, whether you're a writer, you're writing poems or you're a painter or you're, you know, it only is only is positive, um, you know, I think so. Yeah. Well, I think genetically you've also passed it on and I, and, I, and correct me if, if I say his name wrong, but I think your son, his name is Wyatt. Is that correct? Yeah. So he's also a pianist as well. So like, I think you kind of passed that torch. Are you talking to him and influencing him? Cause I mean, he's done a couple of like, you know, performances, like how is he holding on oh, to like that, 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 love that, it. Like, your re- yeah yeah your research is really top notch um so this is this is kind of interesting this can get into how we look at parenting a little bit but um Wyatt came home in fourth grade all right fifth grade fourth fourth grade and said uh I can I'm gonna play an instrument and um he says, I'm going to play the flute. Hmm. And I'm like, okay. Um, now, as a musician, and this may not be a popular opinion, but as a musician, it's, it's, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around a, four, a, a student in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, playing the flute, playing the viola, playing the clarinet. Um, I, it may be a fault of mine. Uh, I really believe that you should be focusing on the piano um, or the drums and or singing to really see and feel if there's an aptitude. And instead of um, forcing an instrument that is not natural to you and obviously not natural to your child and forcing them to practice and um and do it um it just it just didn't it i wasn't open to it and so um i suggested i said hey instead of doing the the flute what would you feel about doing the piano and starting there and then if you like the piano and you want to try the flute we can go there and he had seen me play obviously and and been in the house and and all of that and so getting him to do piano was great and um he did that first year and we stayed on him about practicing but we didn't push it too hard um and and my whole thing is i want to see him want to practice so the second year comes along and he was like you know Oh, I was like, look, we had a couple of blowups about you not practicing. And if you want to keep doing piano, I am not going to force you to practice. I'm not going to do this. And you have to take that responsibility on yourself and, and put that time in if you want to do it. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. Don't play the piano because of me. Yes. And he said, no, I want to keep playing. I'm like, okay. And from that time on, we haven't fought about him practicing. He just comes in and sets his timer for 20 minutes a day 
and sits down and practices and he's gotten better and better and better. He can read but music better than I can. Um, and I have started to make small suggestions. Like last night, he was sitting here practicing right over my shoulder. And he ended on a note. And I said, okay, Wyatt, go four octaves down and hit staccato that note. And he went four octaves down and went, hit it. And then he goes, but that wasn't written on the page. And I said, well, you know, Wyatt, the thing with music is if you're staying within the confines of a piece of music, you do have the ability to hit that note, even though it's not written on the page and it will sound good and it will feel complete and an ending. And he's like, okay. Um, So little things like that. Uh, But I, I mean, he is so disciplined. Um, I mean, his grades are off the chart, uh, but he understands a couple of things in our household. If you want to get good at something, you got to practice. Mm-hmm. No getting around it. And 20 minutes a day on anything in a year, you're going to be so much better at whatever it is you were doing for 20 minutes a day. Um, as well as there's responsibility. It's, it's a responsibility to brush your teeth. It's a responsibility to take the garbage out. It's a responsibility to feed the dog. And the goal in life, in the bull household, is to have as much fun as possible while meeting all of your responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, hey, we're going to have a lot of fun. Um, so I can almost hear you stating like that scenario to your 1099 employee partners, like, like the, the tonality of the way you're talking and you're delivering, I could totally see you having like a, a virtual meeting and you're delivering in that same tone and correct me if I'm wrong, but have you done that before? Have you talked to them? Like, like almost like their family before. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's, it's all one-on-one. I, I have all one-on-one conversations. Stephanie has one-on-one conversations with with our assistants at times. Um, I take the majority of that uh, because I've been leading teams of assistants for a long time now, and um, and that's where that really I try and be empathetic in terms of having when there's a difficult conversation to be had, um, or um, also being pragmatic and and you know how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, you know, so let's not blow things out of proportion. Let's take this step by step. And, um, yeah. And I, I really, really enjoy that part of, of our business and what we do. Um, and that's why, you know, this certification slash training program, while it is built for our current assistants, we also want to be offering that to assistants who maybe don't align directly with being a pro assisting assistant, but could do what they do and potentially make more money than they're currently making um, by by taking our mentorship and our coaching and our help and and chopping that learning curve down um, very quickly um, in the three parts. The three part, one is career, one is life, and one is business. And, you know, the career is what you've built to this point. The life is let's get your life in order. So you're ready to make a transition. Should it happen? 
either at your own choosing or not at your own choosing if you get let go. And then the business aspect is how do you set up a business? What tools do you use? And it's almost like that's the easiest part, but it's also the scariest because people aren't familiar with it. I think I think earlier on you had brought up the four-hour work week, and it kind of leads me into like like time management. We talked about time management before, but the titling of your book, like it's called the 29th workday, 29 hour workday. So I want you to kind of talk about like, was that like a play on the numbers? Why 29? Why five hours over the extra 24 hours? Like, what is the symbolism behind that? Um, when you pick a title for a book, it's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's stressful. You want to get it right. And, and, um, we were fortunate enough to be working with a consultant and she was, you know, spending time with us and, and it ended up happening rather quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the extra, um, the extra five hours relates to the five performance multipliers mm-hmm. of what a great executive assistant does. Uh, um, and those are around, which I said earlier, business partner, chief of staff, project manager, assistant slash scheduler, mm-hmm. and personal assistant. So um, that was the play on words. We weren't shying away from the fact that it is a little bit of a take on the Tim Ferriss book. Um, but, uh, and we thought it would make people stop and ask that exact question. Perfect. Perfect. So that kind of leads me into like, let's say we're cracking open the spine and right away, I mean, you guys got into like the storytelling, right? You was talking about the toast and the raspberry jam and, and the person being kind of like, what the hell's going on? I can't start my morning without the jam. Like you would not think an executive book would start off with storytelling like that. So I want to know like, who's the storyteller in, in the family? Is it Steph or is it you? Cause I mean, obviously that story was well told. Um, you know, we are, I'll, I'll be, we, we leveraged a, a company called Scribe that really helps um, in terms of uh, pulling a book like this out. Um, I've written 12 screenplays. Uh, I have a published graphic novel that uh, I also wrote the script for and we, we got close on that one. Um, so I understand how hard the process was, is to write something and the amount of time and effort. And so we engaged a company to help us. And that story is all me and all mine um, in terms of being personal assistant to Nastasia Kinski on the film Town and Country when she was shooting here in New York for 30 call time, um, had to get her to set, uh, you know, got her out, knew exactly what I needed in terms of what she wanted to eat, except the raspberry jam. They didn't include it in the, in the breakfast. Um, mind you, it was a five-star hotel and they knew to include it, but they didn't. And so, and ended up getting the jam. And, uh, but she told the teamster to leave without me, yada, yada, yada. And, and the director and the producers got a big kick out of that story. And that Nastasia was like, ditch the assistant, uh, let's go. (laughs) And um, actually that was my first day working for her. So um, 
our relationship was built there and um and and she actually laughed along with them so um but how that process worked for the book was you know we were working with a scribe and um hours and hours and hours of of conversations and um developing an outline and um transcribing all our conversations and then pulling it all together and um that was a great way to illustrate the breadth of what a great assistant can do um and something that a lot of people may not think of mm-hmm. or associate with great hospitality high touch hospitality you know taking something um that's a service done to you and doing something that actually makes you feel something you know um and uh, that is from the restaurant tour bobby stuckey um and really that story illustrates that idea behind what a executive assistant does for the principal i think i think it's definitely interesting because i mean at the end of that story you made a, like a hell of an analogy right so whoever like watches marvel superheroes they're very familiar with iron man and and pepper pot is essentially a representation of who you guys are and what you do and obviously she turns out to be a superhero at, at the end of the marvel cinematic universe so with that being said let's say there's a version of pepper listening right now that is your ideal avatar that, that, that that's who you're communicating with what words of insight would you want to leave for her to help her to transition from just being a standard assistant to becoming into a superhero? I mean, if I was talking to Pepper Potts right now, the first words out of my mouth would be thank you. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it, you know, I'm not transitioning pepper into a into a superhero i guess it let me answer it this way if i had to take a great a really good executive assistant and make them into an, an exceptional executive assistant it really would be around digging deeper mm-hmm. on the soft skills because you're not considered a great executive assistant if you're screwing up calendar invites and you're sending people to the wrong place and you're booking travel all wrong. All that stuff is, is those boxes already been checked. Mm-hmm. It's more along the lines of if you're a good executive assistant, you're providing a service. If you're a great or exceptional executive assistant, you're providing hospitality. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that hospitality can come in any number of forms. And um, the interpersonal skills that go along with that um, are the thing about interpersonal skills is that um, you can hear something a thousand times like, um, you know, don't interrupt someone when they're talking, you know, Um, and it's such an easy change to make, but sometimes it takes you a thousand times to quiet your inner voice, um, quiet your nerves and be comfortable in the silence or, and not interrupt someone's train of thought. Um, and so while making the change is easy, it can also be very hard at the same time. 
And it's those little things. Um, like, I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, just so you know, and you're, and everybody listening, I mean, I still work two clients. I still have two clients. And I've been with them for five years uh, since inception of the business. And they're wonderful. Uh, and But it's, uh, I try and provide high-touch hospitality to them all the time. And, um, and so in, in terms, well, there's a video on our website where we talk about high-touch hospitality. And, and an easy example is this couple goes into a restaurant and whenever they go in there a lot, so people know them, the, the waiters know them. Whenever there is a bone-in filet, the mister always orders the bone-in filet and loves it, raves about it, sends people there. Fantastic. Um, if a server saw, or let's say the host, the host says, okay, Mr. Smith's coming in today. And then, oh, we have a bone-in filet, but he's not coming in until eight tonight. We're probably going to be run out by then. He'll go into the back take a bone-in filet, tell the chef, hold this for Mr. Smith. I will tell you when he arrives. And that is taking something that you have detailed information about and, and then transferring that into elevating the service you have to hospitality. Mm-hmm. And executive assistants have all of that information. Mm-hmm. And we gather it over time. And, and we don't charge by the hour pro assisting. And the main reason is because all of the legacy knowledge, personal, business, family, community that we gather, there's value in us holding that information. And if, if we can hold all that information and something comes across our desk and something out of that information pops up and we say, whoa, 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 this isn't work. This isn't going to work. I know this isn't going to work. She's not going to want to do this. Or we need to change this. And if you can do it even without the principal knowing and still take joy in the fact of how you did that without getting the praise because the principal doesn't know, I mean, that internal internal pat on the back, if you will, um, is really important. And so when you're leveling up to that game and you, you don't need praise, but you're, you are trying to take all information you have, just like Pepper, you know, she knows all. And so, and she's guiding the pieces on the chessboard based on that information. And the thing is, there's huge value in that huge. And I don't think a lot of people recognize that, um, when they're talking dollars or hours. So, I mean, I, I think that, that that's a phenomenal approach, right? So an executive is listening to this podcast right now, and they're hearing that it's not necessarily about you having the external gratitude, you have an internal gratitude by satisfying the requirements and needs of that executive. How does that person get in contact with you? What website did they go to? Do they send you an email address? Because obviously hearing you speak, it's a clear distinction between all the different assistants, right? And that's why your price point is what it is. And again, you're introducing not just the functionality of executing the work, but you're also including what you do with hospitality. So where does someone find you? Uh, our website is proassisting.com. Uh, I personally am active on LinkedIn. 
Stephanie is on LinkedIn. Uh, Ethan Bull, Stephanie Bull. Um, Pro Assisting has a page on LinkedIn. There is a free consultation on our site. Anybody can book a call. And, um, you know, I really look at those consultations as um, doing a deep dive on what the prospect needs. And um, I, you know, we are month to month and um, in terms of our agreement. And we did that for a specific reason is that we don't want to lock someone into a long-term agreement. Um, and if we're not providing value. And so on our consultation calls, I want to get down to what are the needs and are they aligned with our service? And if they're not aligned with our service, which service or avenue for support is best for them? It's, I have, I have, I can't tell you how many clients have come to us and said, yeah, John sent me because all he needed was a virtual assistant, but he said he was, he so liked the fact that you did not want to partner with him because he needed a virtual assistant and not what you guys do, but I need what you guys do. And, um, so that's what we do. Um, it's just a simple book a call and we have a call. Um, it's a very simple process. Book a call. If we're aligned and we have a great assistant who I think is going to be a great fit, uh, but we send you an agreement, you sign the agreement, and um, if nothing comes of it, the, the agreement comes null and void, but that agreement allows us to feel comfortable introducing you to one of our assistants. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have an intro call, and how does it feel? What questions do you have? And then um, if it's go, um, we send a welcome email, set a kickoff date, and you're off and running. Um, and, and again, um, based on what I've seen, I just, I just personally, I like a simple process. Um, I, I don't like to, um, get all go deep on and have do work for the sake of work. Um, it's, you know, you're going to know real quick if, if we're fit and if your assistant's the right fit and yeah. And then and the one thing I, I would caution everyone is that what we've been talking about here is pretty high level and it doesn't happen overnight and it takes time to onboard someone and you have to realize that you may have to walk someone through on zoom and record what you're doing so they can see it and follow it and it may take longer to do some of those things than it normally would but the whole goal is for you to never have to do them again. Mm. And the time that that compounds, uh, you know, as you go month, month, month after month after month, will more than make up for the amount of time that you spent in the onboarding process. So um, we are a person-to-person business. It's not a software platform and we're not robots. <laughs> and so there just has to be that, there has to be that expectation. And the goal is to get to know, like, and trust. Do you know, like, and trust your assistant? And does your assistant know, like, and trust you? Because if that relationship is working, we'll walk in front of a bus for you. I mean, that's the, like, and I'm saying this facetiously to just mess with you, but I was saying, if that was a sales pitch, finishing it with that line saying that we will walk in front of a bus for you, <laughs> that is one hell of a tagline. Like, literally, if you're not using it, 
Go ahead and set in some kind of marketing material now. We're not, we're not, but yeah, that's that's not a bad idea. I'll think about that one. Yeah. So that kind of leads me into like like a couple fun bonus questions, and and this question is a question that I'm I'm going to tell you right now. You cannot use Stephanie as an answer for this question. So okay. I'm gonna, I'm going to remove her from the equation because I just see that bond and that unity between both of y'all. So. The question is, if you could spend 24 hours with anyone, and this person could be dead or alive, and you have an opportunity to spend 24 hours with them, who would it be and why? Hmm. Pick the day that I'm spending with them, too? It's up to you. I mean, you have a 24-hour window. It could be anytime, anywhere, with, with anyone. Uh, I mean, I could I could play Jeopardy music, or I can play play your song while you think in the background. Yeah, 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 my song. Um, I guess I would I would have to say twenty four hours. Um, I'd probably have to say like I'd probably go like Steven Spielberg. Mm the day of the first table read for E.T. Wow. That's highly detailed. So why? I mean, Stephen, I get it, because based upon your personality, but why E.T., considering everything else he's done? I, it, there's so much heart in that movie, um, and it hit me at a time in my life where... Uh, you know, I actually knew that it was such a great movie. Um, but you really could take any number of his movies and, um, and going to the table read uh, would be just to get, try and find a 24-hour period where I'm going to learn the most about... Mm how he thinks works and acts um seriously making a movie is like watching paint dry so being on set with him while would be wonderful um you're only going to shoot a page and a half and whereas um the the table you're going to see the whole story from start to finish and and really see how he leads everyone through that process mm -hmm. That's interesting. So, I mean, this this next question kind of feeds off of like what you had said earlier about if time travel was real, right? Now, obviously, there is always a fork in the road, but you've had significant achievements on the fork that you've selected to go down. So, what is your most significant achievement to date? Um. Well. Personally, it's being able to uh, convince my wife to go out with me and then marry me. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'll go back to the whole idea. And, and it's something I've been thinking about more and more. Uh, and and not, I hadn't acknowledged in a long, long time, or, or maybe I never really fully acknowledged it. But I did. There was a portion, a, a pretty large portion of my career where I felt um, ashamed of being a 
career male executive assistant. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think being able to um, create a business uh, and leverage my entrepreneurial pursuits um, through something that at a point, there was a point where I even felt ashamed about, mm-hmm. um, I'm proud of, you know? And so being able to um, part ways, or I was let go of, of my role at the healthcare network, and then um, taking the risk, reimagining what our executive assistant careers could be, and turning that into a business. I, I mean, it's, it's, that's why these last five years, although... The first three were really tough just because there's a lot of stress. And um, I wasn't used to the fact that when you own a business and things are going well, you can still feel a high amount of stress. Um, I'm getting much more used to that now. And the fact that um, we have a growing, we we have a family, not growing the family anymore, but all the expenses and everything that goes along with that, you really want to get above a certain revenue level with certain EBITDA number to meet your needs and all of that. Um, But the last couple of years, being able to do that um, has been, uh, has been the highlight, I think. And I, I'm really excited about where we're going um, because I think there's a lot to offer a lot of other people um, who are in our position or were in our position or, or what have you and get to that place where, you know, work-life balance and you're putting your time where you want and you feel value in what you do. And, um, yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's an exciting time. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think definitely part of you being who you are, you kind of built an entire atmosphere of like education, but hospitality and helping others. And, and earlier on when I had said startups, I, I think like you're like the person that startup founders should reach out to first. They may think they may need developers. They may think they need funding, but obviously getting organized and having someone to have their back and guide them on that, that journey is really what founders really need. Yeah. Uh, I do say though, uh, we, we do play in the high end of the, the sandbox, if you will. And I would not want a startup founder who has a limited runway to, um, I, I, I would want to feel like they have, I would want to see what other options may get what they need as opposed to paying $3,000 a month for an executive assistant through us. Um, I just, you know, I was speaking to someone earlier today and um, I said, I said, look, we really want to see, you know, if, if it's a really small business or a solopreneur business, I mean, comfortably, I'd like to see 500,000 plus of revenue um, to justify a $3,000 month spend on anything, frankly. Um, I do think that the executive assistant or some sort of assistant support for a founder should be one of your first hires. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no doubt about it. It's just about what is best. 
Hmm. And if you're a startup founder and you just landed seed funding and you landed $1.4 million in seed funding and you have a runway of a year, yeah, we, we probably would be a really good fit for you because you're going to get a lot of bandwidth out of our assistant and you're going to create that relationship. They're going to be there from the beginning. They're going to be creating the standard operating procedures for the office, for the business, that no brainer. But if you are starting a business that is developing a piece of software and you're not going to be hitting revenue until a year and a half from now, mm-hmm. it's probably not the right time. Um, it does us no good to force ourselves into a client or business situation where it, you know, we're not somewhat confident that it's going to have legs. Um, and when I mean that, I mean being with them for 9, 12, 14, 16 months, whatever, because of the effort needed to really make a great relationship happen um, between executive and assistant and that onboarding process. And we front load that. And that first month, we don't consider part of our one-third resources. And so a lot of times an assistant will go way over-resourced on that first month, but that's okay. We're taking that risk on ourselves and being that we're going to be efficient, that we're going to be integrated, and um, we're just getting to know you. And so um, all those, we take all that into consideration. Um, I, frankly, though, back in 2019 and 2020, we would take anything, any anyone that came yeah. and wanted to pay us and go. But we're realizing that sometimes no is the answer that needs to be said um, for both parties. And, um, and it's gratifying a couple of times, um, throughout our history, we've, I've said no, and then eight months goes by and it turns into a yes. And you, you you know, a no is never a no. It's if you treat someone with respect and honesty and openness, no is always a maybe later. Um, and, and so yeah, I went, and again, when you say startup, it, the definition is so wide nowadays um, that, you know, I had, I was talking to a person who was like, yeah, we work a startup. I'm like, oh, really? When did you guys start? 15 years ago. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's a personal thing. And there's cachet, you know, there's cash in it too. Well, I definitely appreciate you um, delivering all the value that you delivered today. I think the the audience that's listening right now, I I think that not only did they could feel the the emotional connection that you were talking about earlier on, but they could also see that your your due diligence and what you do and how you do it is a profound theory in comparison to other assistants out there in the world. So I definitely appreciate you for that. So on the flip side of it, when I do these interviews, I like to close out by giving whoever I'm interviewing an opportunity to become the host of my show. So then now you can interview me. Do you have any questions that you would like to ask me? Well, um, it's just thoroughly impressive on how much work you put into what you're doing now. Um, I guess uh, if you were to look at yourself five years from now, what would be um, what would you consider your, what would be, I don't want to say the word concept, success, because I feel like you're already, you, you are successful, but what would make you happy where seeing you five years from now in terms of where you are with your business? Hmm. 
I'm happy you asked that question because I like I always work 12 months out. Like the reason why the podcast is where it is is because of what I did 12 months before. So I'm really working on things into 2024 right now. So going down the road for five years, I would think to your point that you made earlier about all the content that I'm putting out and all this different information, creating the system for that is what I've been developing the entire time. So probably going more into a software space of mine, right? To kind of be more of a founder, but still doing interviews with like-minded individuals. That's where I see myself five years from now. On a like, I'm global now, but more of a larger footprint. You know, it's cool to interview people across the world, but what does it really look like to contact three million people, or thirty million, or three hundred million people that are listening to this and getting feedback and learning from you and learning from other entrepreneurs and using that inspiration as their jumping boards. So, all of because the deep dive research on me that you did, um, a lot of that is software based. Um, potentially it can be. I mean, I've have I have a system now. So to like literally that like that onboarding form is the first point of my my system. So like again, all the data that that's why I've chosen to cancel appointments if they don't fill out the form. Because without the form, it, it gives me it takes me so much longer to find that data. And then once I have access to the data points, then I can go into them and do a bunch of due diligence. Prime example with Stephanie. Well, once I figured out that Stephanie was your wife and she was also the author and she was the co-founder, then I almost pre-interviewed her as much as I interviewed you. And that's when I found out about the kids. If I didn't do that, I never would have known about the kids. You see what I'm saying? Because I think in your page, there was some information there, but it wasn't as deep dived as hers were about the kids. No, cool. Very cool. But you must have seen a video on Facebook of Wyatt playing piano. On her page. And that's what I'm saying. Her page. If her I page. didn't go down the extra steps, I never would have had that bit of information. And I knew that right away you were music musically inclined based upon your information. So I was right. looking for a common denominator. And then when I saw him playing on the piano, I was like, there it is. That's the that's common sweet. denominator. So. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, you put a smile on my face. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely appreciate it. I mean, I, I think like having an opportunity to tell your story. And I think we could, you know, now I understand why Joe Rogan's episodes are like five hours long because <laughs> you, you start to get into this conversation, you're telling story. And there's so many things that I wanted to talk about. Like we didn't even talk about the Bills, you know, like, I mean, you're, you're a huge Buffalo Bills fan and, and, and Go Bills, man. about it. So it was just kind of like, yeah, like all those other things we're going to talk about that we didn't even have the opportunity to get to yet. That's okay. It'll happen. Well, I definitely appreciate you. I think the audience appreciates you. I think you delivered a lot of different value, not only for us, but you deliver value for your clients on a regular day basis. And just for that, from entrepreneur to entrepreneur, I definitely appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Really appreciate it. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762 762- 233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you.
Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss and Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.